Welcome back to the next episode of the Music History Project. In celebration of Black History Month, we have singer, songwriter, and producer Alan Toussaint. Enjoy. Welcome to the Music History Project. We are your hosts. I'm Dan Del Fiorentino. I'm Suzanne Del Fiorentino. And I'm Alex Rosner. All of the content of our podcast is based on the Oral History Collection, which is sponsored by NAM, the National Association of Music Merchants. This collection is over 5,000 interviews and growing. To learn more, check it out on nam.org library. Welcome back, everybody. This is exciting. I'm really happy to be celebrating Black History Month, and I think we picked a good one for you all today. Um, What a complete honor it was to interview Alan Toussaint in his own New Orleans. That was a really great experience. We were there for um, a music convention uh, for NASMD, which is the School Music Dealers Association got together there. And of course, it was a big party, all our friends. And uh, Madeline Crouch, a shout out to her who always organizes that event and helps us with interviews during that wonderful uh, celebration, is a big fan Uh, of Alan Toussaint and she just flipped out when I told her that I had arranged him to come to the hotel where we were at for his interview. She was so excited that I don't know if I got the story quite right, but she left her her own hotel room key in her room. She flew out so quickly to come and meet him that uh, she forgot her key and we took pictures with him and her and it was a delight. It was a wonderful time to say thank you to her for all that she has done for us because she was about five feet off the ground, smiling and just such a happy uh, person. And then my own sort of uh, fanboy came out. You know, I was just like, I can't believe we get to hang out with Alan. This is so wonderful. He's so articulate. He is so connected to uh, his passion for music, which you are about to hear. Um, Nothing can demonstrate that more than just listening to the man talking uh, about his own experiences. So I'm so thrilled that we get to do that today. And I'm glad that uh, Suzanne and uh, Alex are here to enjoy this uh, very special in- interview with us. I just want to give a quick extra shout out to Madeline. She's just amazing. She's helped us so much. And she's one of our secret fixers. So if you think we do this all on our own, we don't. It's it's just us and Madeline. <laughs> <laughs> so now it's time to listen to Alan Toussaint. Uh, The interview was recorded in March 2015. Before I was born, my father was a weekend trumpet player. And uh, he played in the large bands where you sit back and read the charts on the weekends, however, because music hadn't been taken seriously enough for that to be a full-time vocation for for only a select few, at least. But uh, by the time I came along, the third of three children, he secured his job as a railroad mechanic. He worked on locomotives, and he was extremely good at it. But uh, whenever that's asked, I can rely on that he was a trumpet player. And in my neighborhood, there was lots of old guys who, after work in the evening, they would take their guitar from under the bed and sit on their porch and play. So I would hear things like that, and to know that I lived among that. Uh, so that that kind of uh, a rowdy way to look at it in a way. 
But my mother saw that I was interested as an early tot in the piano. So she did enroll me in junior studies for about six, almost maybe eight lessons. I don't think I made it to eight, about six lessons. And she gave up knowing that the boogie woogies had me already. And she was actually right, but uh, I encourage all youngsters to have both, to learn to read as well as you po probably can or possibly can, because it's the same as living in daily life. You can live through life without reading English, but uh, it's a bit tougher. I mean, you have to settle for some things that's not yours if you can't read at all. And that's the way reading music is as well. And you can't have both. And the myths about uh, one may take from the other, never. Everything adds on to everything else you can do. So did you have a piano in your home? Yes, the piano was brought there very early. I was on her about six and a half, something like that, when they brought this big old upright in this big piece of furniture that it took men, not a man, to carry, and sit it in the room in the house because it was given to us by an aunt for my sister and, and this big piece of furniture when I went over and touched it with these white and black keys and it gave me a pleasant hello. It, it actually uh, it felt like that and I couldn't wait till I wake up the next morning to see was that true in that room in there. The, this big hello is there and I, I got started right away. That's neat. So as far as influences, how would you describe what was coming in? My influences in the early days was uh, everything came on the radio, of course, because television wasn't as popular and it certainly wasn't noted for music. But uh, I heard a lot of hillbilly music, a lot of like salon pianos with the trembling right hand and, and I heard uh, Boogie Woogers late at night Ammons and Pine Top and things like that, and blues, WLAC, Nashville, Tennessee, something like that. Blues for the Red Boy, where I'd hear these blues late at night when I was supposed to be asleep. But once I knew that was happening, I wasn't about to miss that. But I would hear, it was mostly influenced by the radio and every now and then a, a recording, because I find the got to a record player that we had, but it wasn't uh, as many records as what's on people's list these days. But uh, every time I heard a piano playing, I thought, if I'm, if I'm going to be a pianist, I'd better learn that. So I went after everything, even when it was grand, even if it was symphonic. I remember the first time I heard Rhapsody in Blue with that first glissando going up. Uh, I just thought, oh, I got my work cut out for me. I may as well start now. And I remember learning Greek's piano concerto in the wrong key because I did have an album with that on it. And for me to have the same sound that was on the album, I had to play a, a half step down because my B flat was there A. Well, I had to play a half step up. And I learned just about all of Grish being a concerto in the wrong key. It wasn't until I was pretty close to being grown that I learned it was Grish being a concerto in A minor, which is a part of the title. But uh, 
I was blessed in a way that, uh, that I had such a zeal for wanting to take it that far. And I'm glad now that uh, I have such diverse tastes. Did the church play a role? Well, early church, I was very Catholic. My family, my mother, mm. and uh, my, my family was Catholic, the whole family. Uh, I didn't play in the Catholic church. Uh, like I said, the boogie woogies had me. <laughs> but I would pass by the Baptist church, and I heard that what was going on in there, and I'd hear gospel, uh, holy roller and gospel music on the radio. And I went after that with the vengeance. I wanted everything I heard. So I loved gospel from the very early stages, as much as I loved symphony and boogie-woogie and, and hillbilly music. I, I saw all these different musics as uh, it must be a part of each one of us, each one of our repertoire. Uh, I didn't know there were specialists, like one works on the finger, one works on the elbows, one works on the, like doctors. Yeah. I, I, and I found out later that they're specialists in music too. Some played this, some played that, some played the other. Uh, uh, it was, I don't know whether it was a curse or a blessing to find out that, yes, they are specialists and you won't be playing everything. But music, uh, whatever you learn, the learning process itself is free. So once you expose, you can have it if you want it. Well, it's accessibility too. I think that's the other part. Yeah, so much is going on around us all the time that we just don't pay attention to. And since we're gonna be there anyway, if we just would only have paid attention to that, when we leave there, we would have that too. Or we could just uh, sit in there thinking about where we're gonna be later and miss that. And I mean in the big life picture as well as just the moment. One of the things that I thought was um, particularly creative is how we can take these different styles like you're mentioning and bring them together in a way that's unique to yourself. Was that difficult yeah. or was that more of a feeling that you followed? That, I don't, well, I, I'll, I'll, stick, I'll stick it on me. I won't speak generally, but I do feel it's a little broader than me. I think uh, you are a reflection of your appreciation and the things you care about. And you are not some of the things you don't like and don't want to be, and you are some of that too. So it seems like you're a reflection of your environment, whether it's spiritual, that, that you can imagine beyond where you'll ever go, which I like that realm. But you, you're a product of all that you take in, and even the things you didn't want to take in, and they demanded that they be heard. Uh, just life is just so very interesting how much inspiration is, a, is about us all the time. Of course, that's why there still can be after all these centuries, a new song will be out tomorrow that was never here before. It's a wonderful feel. So in our first segment, we just heard Alan talking about his background and musical influences, which is always interesting to see how they came to the industry. I think his case was especially interesting. No doubt about it. And I think it's really cool thinking about his era. So he was born in 1938. And in his 20s, 
you know, that was a very impressionable time for uh, a young artist such as himself in New Orleans. I mean, it was incredible. Early 50s, there was a lot of music going on. Fats Domino was recording at that time, Professor Longhair, a lot of people that were major influences on popular music, let alone a young piano player such as Alan. So I think that's a really interesting aspect of his career because if you listen to him play, not just the words and uh, the music that we know from his tunes, but the playing, the style, you know, his touch, how he would just like release the notes at the end of playing, you know, uh, subtle things like that. I think make him such a creative genius that we sort of maybe even pass by some of those nuances. You know, if we don't stop and think, okay, where did that come from? Well, it came from being where he was at that time, in my opinion. So New Orleans was a hotbed, obviously jazz, but also rhythm and blues and what became rock and roll. Uh, He was right there in the thick of it. And among those people that were a great influence to him, that he didn't talk about in his interview. I kind of wish he did. I think I was so starstruck. I I forgot to ask him maybe, but Professor Longhair, let's pause just a little bit to talk about uh, his real name was Roy Bird. So if you see Roy Bird's uh, credits as a songwriter, that's Professor Longhair. Uh, He wrote a lot of great tunes. Um, Go to the Mardi Gras. We hear that almost every year around Mardi Gras time. And Big Chief, one of my all-time favorites. His first big hit was Bald Head, which was a great introduction to to all of us. And that great style of playing. If you aren't familiar with Professor Longhair, I urge you, uh, go find Big Chief. That's a great example of how he did these counter rhythms in his playing and would put in like Afro-Cuban beats and and island rhythms in his two hands. How he did it was just in, absolutely incredible. And the reason I emphasize this is because Alan did the same thing only in his own style. So he took that, I think it, maybe even we could say to the next level in terms of rhythms and in terms of beats with two hands on the piano, just absolutely incredible. So um, a good pause there uh, to remember uh, Professor Longhair, one of my favorites. Uh, Great music when you're working out, by the way. So uh, a little tip for you. So um, what's next? So uh, I want to get back into this interview because he's he's a charmer too, this Alan Toussaint. Yeah, the next segment, uh, we're going to listen to Alan talking about his first professional gig. And uh, a little bit more about how he goes about writing music. Oh, good heavens. Uh, I was with the Flamingo Band, uh, Snooks Eaglin, guitarist. I was 13. <laughs> and uh, Snooks Eaglin was uh, the same age as I. He just made his next birthday one a few weeks before me. But he was a genius guitarist. I'm not sure if you know him or not. Blind Snooks Eaglin. Uh, and uh, other kids from the neighborhood like Benjamin Gregory and Frank Moten, James Jackson, uh, Walter Lang. It was a neighborhood band and uh, we started getting together back in my neighborhood and uh, Snook Eaglin's father heard us that we were that interested and he knew he was, his boy was great anyway. 
he started booking us out in, out in the country, out in places we were too young to be in normally in the city. But uh, he started booking us at those kind of performances. And of course, then we started playing sock hops, high school dances and the likes. But the first, my first career of, of performing with the band was professionally where you got paid something, even if it was a dollar and a quarter, or even if you was promised to get paid and didn't. But uh, none of that ever bothered me because I was so glad to be in that number of this is what they do and I'm one of they. And who are they? They're people who make music. So uh, that was, it never mattered to me how much I was making. Uh, even though, and sometimes they didn't know it, but it didn't matter whether I made anything. Now, did, were you writing at an early age as well, or did that develop later? I wrote my first little duet when I was 12. Uh, it was a very humble little duet, trombone and trumpet. Um, I just thought that would be really pretty. And uh, it was pretty simple, I'll tell you that. Uh, and uh, well, that happened maybe a couple of years earlier. I know I wrote my first song with lyrics uh, when I was 12. Yes, it wasn't much of a song at all, but I do know that I was 12 when that happened. And what have you found that process to mean to you? The process of writing is. Uh, you're imitating God. Uh, you're creating a world according to you. You can make the outcome any way you want to. Don't care how mean she left. In your song, you can bring her back, whether she likes it or not. Uh, even though we don't take all the liberties we can, but sometimes we go further than we should. But uh, again, I say it's like playing God, especially arranging. Because when you first begin to put the pen to paper, all the things that you're thinking should happen, no one knows it but you. And you, as you begin to write it, it's like writing a letter uh, 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 that various people are supposed to read and do their part in it. Then when you get to the place where the musicians are and you bring down a downbeat and you hear for the first time and the whole planet hear for the first time what you had in mind that you put on paper. That's a pretty, in a way, it's a, a kind of cocky feeling, modestly so, because music keeps us humble. But it is something uh, to think that what wasn't a moment ago now is. Uh, and that's a reality. And with the technology, now it's, for, it's forever. Well, as long as we uh, have certain energetic resources. Inspiration, inspiration, inspiration. And I say that because uh, as songwriters we would prefer writing always from sheer inspiration. But with a world that we're moving in at the pace things are going and how fast jets can get to England and all. Uh, and we're involved in this machine that we can't afford to just wait around for the clouds to open up and give us something, which I'm glad to say it still does. But uh, we need more than that cloud feel like rendering. So you can write, after a while you can write 
from your re reservoir of stuff you've collected because you know the process of writing. Like if you wanted a song right now about that pillar, I could do that. Uh, and sometime I'll even look at it and want to do that. Or if it's time to write, I'm going to do that. So there are different processes of writing. Uh, a good uh, analogy is Southern Nights is not one of those that I wrote because I knew anything. I just shared a certain part of my life and I, I spoke in a, mel in a melodic, melodic line, but I wasn't trying to actually uh, make a song, song, song out of my repertoire, at least out of my reservoir of know-how. Uh, chorus, verse, a bridge, tension, release, and then take them out. Uh, that can be thought and is done a lot. But at Southern Nights was a totally inspirational song that I just reported as it hovered over me and told me, sort of told me what to say. Saying, don't you remember? Say this and say that. And in a, in a very comforting way. Other times, uh, uh, well, I collect scraps all the time, everywhere I am if I'm walking anywhere because there's so much going on. And if I see something happening on the corner, if I get back to the car, if I may have a little piece of paper or something to say what I saw and how I felt about what I saw. Because uh, sometimes you'll make a note of something and you make your note too short and you think you're going to remember this forever and this note won't mean anything in three weeks. So I even write about how I felt about what I saw and, and if it's to be anything. And, and I revisited maybe later that evening when, when I've collected enough feathers and wishbones to try to make a chicken out of it. And sometimes I'll look back at it and say, I don't know what I was thinking, why I thought this was worthy of wasting, wasting the pencil on it. Uh, so that's just inspiration, inspiration, always open and grateful that I'm in the, a profession that you can do that. Yeah, you can paint any pictures you want at at anything you see or anyone. Yeah. So, do you find that uh, you hear the song or the melody before you have the lyrics? Usually, if I when I hear a plot, because the first thing, it, many times it starts with a plot, and uh, and sometimes you can answer it one way and sometimes another. So since I've been through where you can do, I'll try both. <laughs> uh, sometimes you'll hear the way, a person, the way a person says something, it had a rhythm to it. For instance, I was in uh, upstate New York. Uh, I remember Bill Flanagan was there and he, everybody was out poolside and they was doing this, that, and the other. And he, and he called a friend of mine, Josh, and said, Everybody smile, click, click. So there's my song. Uh, when he, the way he said that, everybody smile, click, click. The way he said that, that already started a little something, as you can see. Uh, so you can start simply with that and just say that twice, see how that feels. And uh, when you get started, it helps you out itself. 
but uh, in that case, it had a rhythm when I first heard the way they said it. Some things you may see something and you just see what happened. For instance, I was in, in San Diego and I was, it was a Sunday and it was quiet and I was walking to the corner and we had to stop and wait for a red light. Well, just a couple of people were there and I stopped and waited for the red light. And there, were, there was a couple who was a few feet behind us and they, didn't, they were coming to the corner but they stopped a little short because they had to stop and kiss. And they just stopped, and it was just very one one person there, and them back there, and me standing here. And they stopped, and did one of these sort of Hollywood kisses. And it wasn't brutal; it was just really, really nice. And uh, immediately, I turned around from where I was going and went back to the hotel and wrote that song, San Diego. There's so much love in San Diego, and I began to notice things since. Since I saw these people do that, then I saw everything else where I was, and I noticed how green the greenery was, and how fresh the air felt, and all that. And I hadn't paid attention to that until I saw that kiss. So I, I just couldn't go where I was going. I had to go back and get to that. And uh, I went back, and that at that one, I wrote the whole song then, because sometimes I'll write a part of a song and revisit it and throw it in the garbage the next day, but that was the case. And I had heard about this guy with the popcorn person, uh, Farbacher or someone like that. Who's the man with the popcorn? Oh, Rickenbacker. Rickenbacker, that guy. Well, there's a bridge there that has something to do with him and, uh, and his family. So that magic bridge is in my, because I heard that story sit in that car. That magic bridge, uh, of course, added to the beauty in, of green and this all sparked from that kiss. So that's what I mean from ins inspiration. And I, I, I visualize a traveler uh, stopping and laying under that bridge and watching all the boats go by, how pretty things was in green, and uh, everything that went with the song. That, that's a way. So who are some of the uh, songwriters that you admire? Oh, Hal David, of course, with Bert Bacharach's partner doing his heyday, and of course Johnny Mercer. I just, I still can't get over how good that man is. Just marvelous, his metaphors, Moon River. Now it's so simple, but uh, because it's been said. Mm -hmm. For some reason it wasn't said before then. But uh, I like his rhythms too. Yeah. yeah. And his metaphors through a meadowland towards an open door, a door marked nevermore that wasn't there before. That is charming American. Yes. And uh, so I definitely like those greats. And of course, anybody who's breathing have to pay homage to Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan is just phenomenal. And some of the stories beyond the general songs that you hear. Also, Chuck Berry. Uh, this man has uh, put all those little movies out here for us to enjoy. They're little movies, little rock and roll movies. And he takes them from beginning to end. All you have to do to accompany him is just make the breaks when he say, 
as he'll take care of all the rest. Smokey Robinson, the metaphors and the figures of speech, the tracks of my tears. That's quite a picture to think of that. That yes, they do make little tracks, you know. Oh, what a wonderful way to see, see that. People say I'm the life of the party because I tell a joke or two. But um, it's all about the tracks of his tears. And uh, hey, I second that emotion. I thought that was so good I could have punched him. Yeah, he, he's just just great. And about the size of a fish that the man claimed broke is real, is growing, those kind of lines. And my girl, Smoker is just wonderful. And there's something about audiences really early in careers. I think the innocent artists know it long before so-called, quote-unquote, musicians. Uh, I think when people first heard Dylan with like a Rolling Stone, I think they heard all that greatness the audience did long before musicians. Mm. I, I really believe that because they wouldn't have carried on like they did. And then when the Beatles was hollering, she's just 17, you know what I mean? And the little ladies were going crazy all over the world. Something was going on. And all these years later, we see Norwegian wood, night bird fly by the year, just all that wonderful stuff. When I'm 64, who all lived in a yellow submarine, they brought new subject matter to, to the industry. Because for a while, we were only singing about three or four subjects, mostly man and woman, which will never run out. That is always good. But the Beatles and that English uh, influence uh, rushed some other subjects in. There's a kind of hush all over the world, hermits and all that. It's just uh, so much wonderful inspiration. And this is a fine time to be alive because technology can, can secure it for you for a very long time. Hmm. Yeah, I think we all have our favorite lyrics and it's amazing to me. I remember what uh, Jerome Kern used to say about Irving Berlin is he was blessed with every man's ear and heart. And I always thought that was so cool, you know, especially when that. you hear a song that connects with you, you understand what that means. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Yeah, some folk have that. that. That Dylan is loaded. Good heavens. Oh my gosh, you guys, this is so much fun. I love listening to him. He is amazing. This is so great. Wow. And, you know, speaking of his influences, of course, he was a major influence on a whole other generation of people. I think that's an important thing to say. He was, I think, too uh, dignified a person to, to boast about that. But there are countless people who call him uh, among their heroes. So I think that's a, an important point to make. And I also think um, the early days, like the early 50s and 60s, when New Orleans was really becoming a place to go to, to have your music recorded. So it wasn't just the folks that were there, like uh, Ernie Cato and Fats Domino, but it was also the folks that wanted to go and get that sound on their records. So kind of like Muscle Shoals a couple of years later, I, New Orleans really was that rhythm and blues bass. And so 
Uh, Lottie Miss Clotty, one of our favorite songs by Lloyd Price, of course, was recorded there. And who was in the background? Who was the studio musicians? Oh my gosh, it was Dave Bartholomew and Fats Domino on piano. A lot of people don't know that. Uh, that was because Lloyd wanted that sound. And go there, right? <laughs> go to the sound. And, and that's exactly where Alan was. And he would be in the studio writing these songs and people would come in like Lee Dorsey. Lee Dorsey walked in and said, okay, what songs do you have for me today? Okay, well, here I have a song called um, Working in the Coal Mine. Became a big, huge hit for Lee Dorsey. And that was because Alan was in the studio at the piano writing songs. What do you got? Here, take this one. Uh, Ernie Cato walked in one day in 1961 and uh, asked Alan, what songs do you have? Well, I have one about my mother-in-law. <laughs> That's a great tune. And great lyrics. The worst person I know is one of the lyrics in there. I don't think it was a personal thing, though. I, I didn't ask him about that. But these are, the, these are kind of fun, tur quick turnaround type of songs, but very important. The two people I just mentioned, those were their two biggest hits, were the ones that Alan just threw at them while they walked into the studio. Um, Benny Spellman, we got to throw that name out there too. In the early 60s, he also went into the studio and recorded a couple of songs that uh, Alan wrote, including Lip Lipstick Traces and The Fortune Teller, two great big hits. Dan, what were the studios, the, the go-to studios uh, that people go, went to in New Orleans? Well, Alex, that's a really good question. You know, New Orleans has always been rich with recording studios that have played a very important part in capturing the history of music that took place there, going way back to the early days of jazz. And even today, there's some very important studios. But the uh, era that we're talking about for this podcast, 50s and 60s, there's one particular studio we must mention, and that is J&M Recording Studios. It was formed by a young chemistry student named Cosmo Matassa. What's really interesting about him is I'm not exactly sure how he got into recording. Uh, I do know that he tinkered with recording equipment when he was young and may have had one in his uh, family garage. But in 1945, he started his own, had a new studio built, and it was called J&M Recording Studio. And there, some of the iconic songs that would play a very important part in the early days of rock and roll were recorded, including Roy Brown's 1947 hit, Good Rockin' Tonight. A few years later, Fats Domino came in to record The Fat Man, and Little Richard recorded in 1955, Tutti Frutti. One of my favorite songs of all time was actually recorded there in 1952 by Guitar Slim called The Things I Used to Do. He had some amazing talent coming in and out of that place, and it launched a second uh, studio in 1956, I believe it was, and that's where Fats Domino recorded almost all of his big, big hits, and that was Cosmo's Recording Studio. Very, very interesting guy, very talented, and he had some amazing people as session players, I might add. I also wanted to add real quickly that there are some other studios that have played a very important part in New Orleans, some of them still operating today, including the Music Shed, Leaf Recordings, the New Orleans Powerhouse, the Parlor, and Word of Mouth Studios. The other thing I wanted to mention is uh, when we're talking about Alan's early days is he also wrote a couple of songs that weren't recorded in New Orleans, but by people who called on him and said, hey, 
do you have a song for me? And one of them was Otis Redding, one of my all-time heroes. Uh, Pain in My Heart was re- recorded by o- Otis Redding and written by Alan. And I think it's worth mentioning that because um, that's not a connection most people would make because, of course, uh, uh, Otis was always recording in Nashville or in Memphis at Stax Records. So uh, not a lot of connection with New Orleans, but certainly a connection with Alan. So, um yeah, so I just wanted to make sure we talked about some of those songs because they're near and dear to a lot of people. And, of course, that was the beginning of his very long and successful career was that little niche that was not his performance but his behind-the-scenes uh, contributions to music in New Orleans. That was very interesting, Dan. So about 10 minutes ago, you mentioned Alan's piano, <laughs> which was a Steinway, and he had a long association with the Steinway Company. And in the next segment, he talks about this, and um, there's also a hurricane story, so stay tuned. Are you officially part of the Steinway family? Yes, yes, I'm very, very glad to say. Uh, not only because I just feel that they're so high up towards the heavens as far as making piano, pianos, but uh, they care. They care about what's going on. And, and I feel uh, they care about the product, and they still make a very good piano, a fine piano. And they certainly came to, they came to our aid when we were definitely in need with, without us asking. That was really cool. How so? Well, I was on a radio station in New York uh, right after Katrina saying, what I'd lost, which was everything except what I had when I left home to go to the hotel. And I had lost my Steinway as well. It was a big gray mask when I got back home to look at it. I couldn't tell white keys from black. Uh, you couldn't tell one key from another, just was two gray lines, and everything else was gray. It looked like you had shot insulation for me of the, over the whole building, high and low. And... Uh, while I was on the air and playing a couple of tunes here and there, uh, someone from Steinway called, in fact, Miss Bonnie Barrett. And uh, they heard my story and said, we'll see to it that you have a piano, because I had an apartment in New York at that time. And you'll have one for as long as you need one. Good heavens, a, a Steinway. I mean, for a person to tell you that about anything is good news. But about a Steinway, especially at that moment, which I had none, and they did just that. I was able to go over to that store and choose the one I want, which is a terrible thing to do. It's hard to choose out of a hundred pianos. You need to choose out of three, or five at max. But uh, I'm glad to say that I was able to go over and pick up one, and they've been wonderful with it. I was able to bring it to New Orleans. And and everywhere I go, uh, there's a Steinway provided, uh, one way or another. And I do feel at home on a Steinway. Was that the Steinway Hall that you went to, to in New York? When it was on 57th, with, I'm sorry to say it just moved. Well, I'm not sure whether I should be sorry to say it just moved. Because there are many reasons for moving. Probably mostly good. Mm. Uh, but I, I like the idea of Steinway on 57th Street. It just looks right. 
sounds right. Yeah. Um, Plus yeah. it was gorgeous. Yes, yeah. yes. That big round showcase, the right. front room. Uh, it just looked like uh, if someone was to come from Mars and you took, you wanted to show them, it should look like this where they sell these. Well, uh, but they moved, and like so many things moved, there's other reasons why that happened. Uh, wherever they moved, they're still Steinway, and that's wonderful. Well, it's amazing to me, you know, uh, thinking about how horrific that hurricane was. Katrina, um, you know, I had heard stories of course, Fats Domino lost a lot of his stuff, uh, his piano, and Alan, and so on. But to have the industry step up the way they did in replacing a lot of those instruments for those musicians and also the music stores that were down there, uh, it was really a neat thing to see how many people lend a helping hand during that very horrible time. Dan, and uh, there was a mention about the Steinway store in New York. Uh, did you go there? I did go there. That was, uh, they call it Steinway Hall, right in the heart of Manhattan. And um, it was a wonderful experience. I, um, they have a showroom. Um, and then down below, they basically have a tuning area. So you could go in and pick an instrument. And oftentimes, uh, classical musicians that would come from around the world to play at places like Carnegie Hall would first stop at Steinway Hall to pick out their piano, the one that they want to play with, because they, of course, they're all different. And then it could be tuned specifically to their requirements right there uh, at Steinway Hall. So you hear a lot of tuning when you go in. Um, and then I believe it's upstairs was where Henry Steinway's office was. He had his old typewriter still typing away and just these wonderful plaques and pictures of his family um, all over the place. It was a, a wonderful experience. And I enjoyed what uh, Alan was saying about that he was offered a hundred pianos and he says, I only want to choose between three, not a hundred. <laughs> <laughs> Narrow it down. Yes. Yeah. Uh, you know, when we were talking earlier about his amazing gift as a songwriter, I wanted to separate it from his performance. So later on, now that we're progressing a little bit in his career, I just wanted to pause to say that there is nothing like listening to Alan Toussaint perform. There are some videos on the internet that I would strongly recommend for anybody who uh, would like to... Uh, dig a little deeper. Um, one is actually um, the American tune, which is a song that Paul Simon wrote. Uh, you can find Alan's version. It's a live performance and it is fantastic. It is so great. Um, it might even be fun for you to listen to Paul Simon's version first and then Alan's to see how he changes it and how he makes it his own and how he incorporates his own style of piano playing in this song. It, it, to me, it's fascinating. It's absolutely wonderful. But of course, any song of his uh, that, uh, that he wrote is also fun to listen to. You know, his biggest hit was probably Southern Nights. And when uh, Glenn Campbell recorded it, boy, he took it in a totally different direction and it became a big, big hit for, uh, for Glenn Campbell. Listening to Alan's version of that song is fascinating. It, it's, it's, 
almost the words take on a different meaning the way he interprets his own song. So I just wanted to throw that out there. And we didn't talk about him being a producer. He also was a fantastic record producer. And he gave us um, songs like The Right Place, Wrong Time. Uh, love that tune, 1973, uh, Dr. John, uh, who we also got to interview uh, for the oral history program at NAM, And then, of course, uh, the meters. He, he produced most of the meters' biggest hits, like Sissy Strutt and others. And come on, the LaBelle's Lady. Now, how do you pronounce it? Lady Marmalade or Marmalade? Like the jam? Yeah. Marmalade. Because when I hear it, when I hear the song, they always pronounce it differently. I don't, I, don't, I don't quite get it, but it's spelled the same way. So with that, let's continue with our interview. Where are we at now? Yes, you continue your interview asking the question, what music means to Alan? Well, it has served so many different parts of me. Uh, I would like to be able to... I can't separate myself from being a musician and talking about music. I, I wish I could talk about music without being a musician because then I would hear it and not see it and hear it and know what that is. I would not know, oh, that F chord went to D. And, and I'm not saying that that's so great. It's just that to know that is to know that. And you can never have the luxury of not knowing that if you, but a person who's not a musician and don't care what that card was, I imagine that it must be a bit different to them and in a way more wonderful. Uh, uh, rather than for you to be trying to keep up with it like it's your job to, I better keep up or do I know what just happened there. I don't think what just happened there is something that needs to be known. It just needs to be enjoyed. Uh, so that's why I say it's hard for me to uh, deal with that because I, I'd really rather hear it from an innocent ear. Let me give an interesting example. When I did the arrangement for Life as a Carnival for the band, uh, when they, they first had played that song in the rhythm and vocals, and I was to add horns, and when they had sent, sent me the CD, and I listened to it, from the way the introduction started, I couldn't tell whether one, two, three, four was. And I, I got the pin in a hurry before I got to know, because I wanted to write it down, this, because I won't have this luxury very long. And I, I kind of equated like, to kiss a pretty girl before you know her name. Uh, after a while, I'm gonna know her name and other things about her and how she sounds when she talks and all that. But right now, it's just this kiss to this pretty girl. This can never happen again. Because once I know her name and, and what she likes and what she liked, things are going to be different. So I'm gonna hurry up and get this kiss in, you understand? But uh, I started writing the intro before I, to, before I knew where the, ex, exactly where the one was, and just to make it work out so right when he began doing that. And I had a lot of fun doing that because that doesn't happen very often. Uh, because once you 
understand how things go. As soon as you hear a song start, da, 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 you know where that is. But that gave me a chance to float out there in, in uncharted waters in a way, like I was saying, not knowing. Uh, of course, after, after only a few minutes of putting that down, on, uh, maybe not a whole minute, the one was so obvious, now I know it forever. But I'm so glad I wrote that intro. At least I have that intro, which is a part of that innocent guy that didn't know this song like I know it now when I'm writing the rest of it. And I, uh, I think the way that went up early, uh, it had something that said something even later on in the arrangement. It had uh, a part of that guy who now he knew what he was doing, but he did some of that what he did when he didn't know what he was doing. I hope that makes some sense to Absolutely. you. But it, it was quite a luxury. Uh, it's just that we, we can't really depend on having that because as you live and learn, you learn to know. Once you know, you never try and unknow. You can't anyway. There's no reason. So what have your thoughts been in terms of inspiring young children who come up to you and say they want to be a musician? What have been some of your thoughts about that? Well, it doesn't happen to me often, uh, but I know what that means if, it, if, one, if such would happen. If, they had, if I thought they really had an ear to hear what I was about to say, I would say to surround yourself with good people and listen to everything you can, no matter if, it's, if you think it's your bag or not. Just listen, because listening is free. Uh, you're going to be alive in the next five minutes. You can have this to you now. Add this to you five minutes worth of this. Uh, because even in whatever you're doing, a little piece of that may slip right in when you need it, where it never would have met before. For some reason, since you collected that that day, those five minutes, here is where that little key fit. Uh, you could have not had that, and this would have gone on and be mediocre forever, because it needed that which you got from somewhere else. So surround yourself with good people, and as far as learning, if you're, going, if you're a reader, if somebody's in your field and they're writing articles, read articles that successful people write in that and not unsuccessful people thinking I could learn from how to lose so not to. I don't think you should give losing any practice or learn more about how it goes. There's no need in trying to keep learning something unless you want to use it. Uh, there's enough uh, learning how to win that you won't have to try to learn how to about losing, about not to lose. That's, that's playing defense with life. You have to be offensive. Yeah. Well said, yeah. Yeah, well, and I, I think if you can, as much good stuff and people as you can surround yourself with, and uh, love, love strongly and few. 
Was it, was it easy for you to surround yourself with positive people? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I said yes because uh, sometimes I answer without thinking. Uh, now I have to, since I've said yes, I had better defend it. <laughs> well, let me say some of the first positive people was when I was coming, starting to play, and my mother saw that I was so interested. She was happy about that. My father liked it as well, because even though he had given it up, but uh, what makes them uh, drop into the conversation right now is when company would come to the house, my mother would get me from wherever I was, come play something. You know, I was going to play a simple little boogie-woogie. But she gave me positive response for what, it, what I was doing and would have me to play for the company a bit. And I remember every now and then I would go and talk with my father about written music because he wasn't a cat who could scat. He was a reader. And I would discuss something on, that I put on paper with him. And I know, I, I know he enjoyed that I was doing that. Even though at the time I wasn't thinking that, oh, he's enjoying this, but as I see now, he really liked the idea that I was doing that. Yeah. You know, I, I had a good time with my parents. Yeah. <laughs> That's neat. Mm -hmm. Very cool. Yeah. Uh, well, they loved me, but I think they liked me too. Well, I sure hope you guys are enjoying this episode of the Music History Project. Uh, we are so pleased to be presenting this interview, which is one of about 5,000 in our collection. Uh, this podcast is based on the interviews of the Oral History Program at NAM, And I am just, I can't tell you how thrilled I was to uh, sit toe-to-toe -to -toe with Alan. Uh, it was a wonderful experience. And so I brought an album for him to sign. Uh, he's about to talk about uh, the wild sound of New Orleans, which was recorded in the 50s uh, when they were churning out all of these records. Um, what's interesting to me about this is we really get to hear his style of playing without a doubt. These are songs that he wrote uh, sometimes without him. Uh, what is that pseudonym, right? Is that the right word? It's a, it, He's not using his real name. Is that the right word for that? Yes. Okay. You distracted me because it sounded like cinnamon. Oh, are you hungry, Suzanne? <laughs> Perhaps. <laughs> okay. Anyway, he would use his mom's name, uh, Naomi, um, sometimes uh, when he wrote songs, which I thought was cool because that's one of the tracks on this uh, this album that I, I brought to him. Um, and, and there's a couple of others that I really like. Real Churchy is a great name of a song um, and a, a, a Blue Mood uh, is another great tune uh, from that album. So it was a wonderful experience. So let's hear him talk a little bit about how that album came about. I was playing on a session, uh, and I was piano. Well, I was the pianist for many recording sessions, and this day I was one for Roland Cook. And Danny Kessler was the talent scout who was those guys just travel around the country during those days and find seek talent here and there. When we were doing the recording, Danny Kessler was behind the glass with Cosmo in the control room, and he would always say, turn the piano up, turn the piano up, because he liked my enthusiasm, and uh, and he was hearing the sounds of the day, I guess, because uh, 
I did sort of master whatever was going on during our times. Uh, whatever songs was on the radio, I knew them all. Uh, and was very angry if I didn't know one and, and, and saw to that I learned my lesson. But uh, when the session was over, because we, we always used to do four songs in three hours, and he came over to the piano and he said, uh, I love what you're doing. Can you prepare an album for me? And uh, I said, yes. That's one of them things you say yes, and then now you have to live up to it. But uh, I wasn't about to not. But I, I said yes, and I, he came back in about 10 days, and I had these songs written out, Java being one of them, and uh, was ready to record and got together with uh, the musicians there, Red Tyler, Lee Allen, and Earl Palmer, and Hungry on drums sometimes. And that was the uh, that was the Wild Sound of New Orleans album, and that's what the album you just showed me. Happy Times is one of the uh, songs on there, and uh, it, in fact, it came out as a single. Happy Times, and the other side was Whirl Away. Well, all the num the songs I named them all just numbers because I was just had to prepare this many songs. So it was number, song number one, number two, number three, number four. I named two songs. One I named Naomi because of my mother, and one was called Me and You. Because it was a little soft shoe kind of song, and it's in total reminiscent of my mother. And uh, all the rest of the songs, those names like Happy Times, Java, Nashua, Tim Tam, even Whirl Away, I didn't name that. They're all racehorses because Danny Kester was a racehorse fanatic. I don't know whether on the upside or the downside, but all of them were racehorse names. It was fine with me. Uh, I just had to learn, oh, that's number f song number four, that's song number five. That's how this uh, album came about, and he named it The Wild Sound of New Orleans, and he cut my name down from T-O-U-S-S-A-I-N-T to T-O-U-S-A-N, something like that. He said, during that period, he thought DJs would see a name like that and it looked too something for the kind of format they were playing on their, their top 40 stations. Uh, T-O-U-S-S-A-I-N-T sound like a classical name or something. Uh, in fact, I was on, on the same billboard uh, pamphlet as Giselle McKenzie, I remember. And Giselle McKenzie, then Alan Toussaint, we all look like this must be a symphony orchestra coming here. So he had a good point by changing the name, I guess you might say, and it was fine with me because whatever they did with their part of it, I was glad and I just hope they did with as well as what they did as others who was doing what we were doing. You're listening to the Music History Project. If you would like to see the interviews the podcast is based on and many more interviews relating to the music industry, go to nam.org slash library. And in the next segment, you're going to hear one of Dan's trademark questions, mm. Memories of Music Stores. One last thing to... to gather from you if you don't mind is uh, we also represent uh, the music merchants the the schools I mean the uh, stores 
and I wonder if you have any memories of uh, going into music stores and, and any relationships that you might have with, uh, with music stores. Oh, well, I came up during the days of music stores. Of course, when you say music stores, well, in my earliest days, there was World Lines, there was a Groom Wall, uh, I may be not pronouncing it as it should be, Groom Wall, and uh, there was Peter's Music on Broad Street, but now that was a music store that didn't sell pianos, but it sold sheet music, blank and, and books, and a couple of small instruments. So music stores were always like hardware stores. If I see a music store, I have to go and spend some time, pay homage. Uh, I have to go spend some time in there and almost feel guilty about coming out with nothing. But uh, music stores have always been very important. Of course, with the mega stores coming, some of the smaller stores had to, uh, well, vacate. Uh, that's just the signs of the time. But I love music stores. I still do. And musicians do in general. Uh, when we go to other cities and in other countries anywhere, even from the airport to the hotel, when guys get ready to check in the hotel, they'll be discussing, you know, I saw a music store around the corner. Yeah, I saw one too, uh, three three blocks away. And uh, and an hour later, someone will call you and ask you, you ready to go around to the music store? Music stores are very important. Uh, like I'd say, they're similar to hardware stores to, for a mechanic or a carpenter. Okay, well, that will conclude our podcast. That's the end of the interview with Alan Toussaint, and what a joy it was. And timely. Unfortunately, um, Alan, um, just a few months after this interview was done in March of 2015, in November of that same year, he had a tour of Madrid, Spain, and did a concert, went back to his hotel, and had a heart attack, and did not survive. And it it does it, I, it's never lost on me how um, precious it is when we can create a interview like this because life is so fleeting we don't know he didn't seem unhealthy to me at all he wasn't and so the, the next time I went to New Orleans would have been too late it's just amazing how timing works for us and all for us to enjoy his music a little deeper because we have a better understanding of where these great songs came from when listening to him and an appreciation for that great talent that he gave all of us. And I'm really very thrilled about that. And so thank you for listening. Uh, thank you for digging a little bit deeper into his career. Go listen to some of his music uh, because it will be uh, very, uh, I believe, inspiring for you. I'm so happy we could share this really special interview with you. Um, I would encourage you to go to the NAM website and uh, look up his interview just so you can see him. It kind of gives a whole new slant to what a wonderful person he was, a very dapper gentleman. You won't be disappointed. And I'm going to make sure that I will listen to Alan's music and find out more and enjoy his beautiful talent. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Music History Project. This has been Dan Del Fiorentino, Suzanne Del Fiorentino, and Alex Rosner. 
If you like what you heard today, please subscribe on iTunes and leave us some feedback. If you have ideas for future podcasts or recommendations for interviews for the Oral History Program, please send an email to library at nam.org. That's library at namm.org.